Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Recap 3, episodes 28 to 50 from the year 1000 to 1122. This episode is the third in the Recap series, going over episodes from 28 to 44. We're actually at episode 50, but episodes 45 to 50 were recaps themselves, so there's no real point doing a recap of a recap then you don't know where to stop. It becomes a recap of a recap of a recap of a recap, and then you're just recapping everything, and you don't know where you started. We'll be looking back over the history of the Italian peninsula from the year 1000 to the year 1122, from the millennium to the Concordat of Worms, that sort of put an end to the investiture crisis. We started off in episode 28 by taking a look at what life would have been like for different social classes at the turn of the millennium, where people lived, what jobs they did, and what they ate. We also looked at the issue of the millennium scare and saw that there weren't really scenes of mass hysteria and impending doom. We then went back to our Emperor Watch, in time to see Otto III's untimely death at the start of the millennium, and then Henry II of Bavaria became king of Germany. His next step was to descend into Italy and to be crowned king of the kingdom of Italy. I use the term kingdom of Italy and not just Italy because the kingdom didn't actually cover all of the land, but only northern Italy to the west and up to Venice, but not including the city to the east, and down to the confines of Rome in the south, and no further. However, Henry II found that while he was taking and consolidating power in Germany, Arduin of Ivrea had popped up and had himself crowned king. I say popped up, but that was not quite how it went, because he had spent quite some time building up his power base as a local lord with a mix of diplomacy and quite a lot of violence. For example, when he killed the Bishop of Vercelli, burning down his church and then his body for good measure. Or when he threw another bishop to the ground and kicked him into submission. He also managed to put the lower nobles against the higher nobles and the xenophobic peasants against the Germans and their king and possible emperor. The Italian nobility and clergy lined up either pro-Arduin or pro-Empire, and the game was afoot. Henry was busy and sent down a vassal to face Arduin, but Arduin managed to defeat him, but he was not able to capitalise on his victory, and when Henry himself made his way down with a huge army, that of Arduin melted away. Among those supporting the imperial army was a long-time friend of the empire, the Canossa family, whose head at this time was Tedaldo. 
That was it for Arduin. He finished off his days in a castle above Ivrea, and finally died of old age in 1015. He would later become a nationalist hero, hailed as the first real Italian king. Now Henry was free to make his way down to Rome and be crowned Holy Roman Emperor after becoming King of Italy. Rome at this time was a mess. Well, Rome's always been a bit of a mess. Anyway, it's a mess today, but at this time it was ripe with factional violence and various competing families and groups trying to select popes from their faction or sympathetic to their faction. As we headed south, we saw in episode 30 how the continued Saracen raids had caused havoc, but we also saw that the rise of the maritime republics had acted as an effective counter to the Muslim threat. The taking of the city of Luni in Tuscany had triggered the creation of an anti-Saracen alliance by Pope Benedict VIII. The coalition included Pisa, Genoa, Ranieri of Tuscany and the Oberdengi family of Piedmont. The coalition not only managed to free Luni, but also to defeat the Arab fleet around the Strait of Messina and free the coast of Sardinia. We then took advantage of the mention of the island to talk about the system of Giudicati, the four de facto independent kingdoms of Sardinia. They had a rather modern organization, with the land not owned by the sovereign, but by the people, who actually had a sort of early form of parliament, when the rest of Europe would have scoffed at the idea. They had local assemblies called the Coronas de Curiatores, that would then send representatives to the higher parliament of the Giudicato, the Corona de Logu. Once we had looked at Sardinia, we went down to witness a rebellion in 1009. The rebellion, which was against the Byzantines, started in Bari and was headed by a man called Melo, who was quite successful for a while. However, when the Byzantines really decided to commit, they were able to put down the rebellion, and Melo went up to the court of Henry II looking for help, but didn't get much. One important element that the rebellion and the general uncertainty in the South revealed was the increasing use by the various factions of Norman mercenaries, which we discussed in more detail in episode 33. Having understood the fractured situation in the South, Emperor Henry II tried to take advantage of it and came down with a large army. He started off being escorted by his vassal of the Canossa family, who by this time was Bonifacio, son of Tedaldo, who had also increased his holdings. Henry in the end was not able to oust the Byzantines once and for all, but he was able to place some key men in key places and make alliances that guaranteed a certain influence also in the south of the peninsula. He made it back to Germany, in time to die, in 1024. His successor was Conrad II, 
who founded the Franconian or Salian dynasty. As was the tradition, once he was king of Germany, he needed to head down to Italy to be crowned first king of the Kingdom of Italy and then emperor. His descent into Italy is a good example of the messy political situation. He was invited to be crowned by the Bishop of Milan, Aribert, so in 1028 the would-be emperor made his way down. Pavia, where he was supposed to be crowned, closed its gates in his face and he was forced to lay siege. He was crowned instead in Milan, which welcomed him with open arms. He then headed to Ravenna, where his soldiers were attacked by locals and Conrad himself had to intervene to stop a massacre. Marquis Ranieri of Tuscany did not let him pass and closed himself up in Lucca. He was then deprived of his lands which were given to the more faithful Bonifacio of Canossa, making him one of the empire's most powerful vassals. Things didn't go much better when he finally got to Rome. There, the Romans attacked the incoming imperial troops. The rebellion was repressed, and, as tradition dictated, the leaders of said rebellion were decapitated and their bodies thrown into the Tiber. Conrad was then finally crowned by Pope John Nineteenth. His headaches in Italy, however, were far from over, because then we had the whole Aribert, Bishop of Milan business. In the city, the lower-level nobles had become unhappy with the rule of the bishop and the higher-level nobles, and there had been a rebellion put down by Aribert. Conrad, as was his role, had been called in to judge the matter, and ruled in favour of the rebels, having Aribert imprisoned in Piacenza. However, he managed to escape and make his way back to the city, rallying the citizens around the Carroccio, the war card of Lombard origin, that held the insignia of the city. This important symbol would resound through the period of the communes to this day with some of the political symbols of the Northern League Party. Anyway, Conrad was not able to take the city and recapture Arabat, which was a big stain on his pride. Despite this failure, he wasn't doing too bad. He had the faithful Canossa family in the north, good relations with the Pope, and in the south... He had a powerful ally in Guaymar IV, Prince of Salerno. One important event in the reign of Conrad was his issue of the Constitutio de Feudis, granting various rights to lower vassals, such as hereditary titles, and also rights to the city authorities, making it an important step in the formation of the city-states. In episode 33, we stopped to have a closer look at the Normans in southern Italy. We saw how they possibly first came to the country as pilgrims and were used as mercenaries by various factions. Then, Reinulf Drengot was the first to actually hold lands and set up a county in Aversa. 
He and the Hauteville brothers, in particular William and Drogo, joined the anti-Byzantine rebellion and then, and then took up arms, winning the battles of Olivanto, Monte Maggiore and Monte Peloso. They left the Byzantines bruised and battered and holding only a strip of land along the coast of Puglia. We then popped up back north because Conrad II had died in 1039 and the throne passed to Henry III, who continued to take advantage of the alliance with Bonifacio of Canossa, whom, however, he started to look at with some mistrust due to the vassal's growing power. Henry also delved into the Pope situation because things in Rome, as usual, were a bit chaotic. We had the Tuscolo family opposed to the Crescenzi family, both supporting different popes, i.e. the Tuscolo with their man Benedict IX and the Crescenzi opposing Sylvester III. Apparently, Benedict IX in particular was a pretty bad egg. And for a bit of dirt, you can go back to episode 34. However, we'll just bring back the words of the anti-papal historian, Ferdinand Grigorovius. It seems as if a demon from hell, in the disguise of a priest, occupied the chair of St. Peter, and profaned the sacred mysteries of religion by his insolent courses. In this opposition, the Roman nobility also decided to wake up and impose a third pope, Gregory VI. In the end, Emperor Henry III deposed all three popes, and in the Council of Sutri in 1046, he put Clement II on the throne of St. Peter. Now, Henry III may have felt that he had solved the situation, and in a certain sense he had. But little did he know that by taking the papacy, at least momentarily, out of the reality of factional Roman infighting, he also allowed it to set the course for the reform that would bring the church on a head-on collision with the empire itself. The reform would come to be known under the name of one of its most important popes, Gregory VII, and, among many other issues, sought to correct the questions of celibacy of the priests and, in particular, simony, the buying and selling of church offices that not only the clergy but also the nobility of Europe were involved in. This opened up the general issue of investitures, that is, who had the right to nominate bishops, consequently granting them power and lands. Clement II didn't really get a chance to see the reform along much, because he died quite soon and was eventually substituted by Leo IX. Leo IX had a bit of a bee in his bonnet about the Normans on his southern doorstep, and he tried to set up an anti-Norman alliance that failed miserably when it was defeated by the Normans in 1053 at the Battle of Civitate. On the Norman side were Reinolf Drengot, Umfred Hauteville, and another Hauteville brother, Robert 
known as the Giscard. The year after the battle saw a further distance come between the Byzantine Empire and Italy with the Great East-West Schism of 1054, which we spoke about in episode 35. The definitive recognition of the dominance of southern Italy by the Normans came in 1059 in Melfi, when the Pope at the time, Nicholas II, recognized the Normans as Dukes of Calabria and Puglia, and also Sicily. That meant that they actually had to go and get Sicily, and when they were invited to intervene in factional fighting in the Muslim-ruled island in 1061, they seized at the opportunity. The Muslim capital of Sicily, Palermo, fell in 1072 to Roger Hodeville, brother of Robert Giscard, just a year after Bari had fallen to the Giscard himself. In a short span of time, the Byzantine and Muslim presence in Italy were no more. This leads us to close things up in the north, and the church reform, the investiture controversy, and the Canossa family. As we mentioned before, the big name in the church reform was Gregory VII, who had started out as a monk named Ildebrando di Soana. He became Pope in 1073 and immediately showed he meant business, claiming a whole series of rights and the supremacy of the papacy. One main bone of contention with the empire was the right to invest bishops, something the Pope claimed that only he could do, but the emperor was doing it left, right and centre. This soon led to a new emperor, the son of Henry III, Henry IV, deposing the Pope, and then the Pope excommunicating the Emperor. The latter was being forced to attend a synod in Augsburg when he headed off the Pope at the castle of Canossa, where he kneeled outside in the snow for three days and three nights, and Gregory was finally forced to forgive him. This event in 1077 was known as the Humiliation of Canossa. Aside from Emperor Henry IV and Pope Gregory VII, the other protagonist of the event was Matilda, Countess of Canossa and Margravine of Tuscany, who had become the sole ruler of a good part of northern Italy, stretching from Tuscany almost up to the Alps after the deaths of her father, Bonifacio, who had died in a hunting accident for which Emperor Henry III was one of the possible culprits, her stepfather, Godfrey the Bearded of Lorraine, her husband, Godfrey the Hunchback, who had died after having a sword stuck up his bottom as he was going to the toilet, and her mother, Beatrice. The humiliation of 1077 was just a pause, and Henry and Gregory were soon at it again, and this time all-out war broke out and dragged on for years. Finally, Matilda would win out over Henry, both militarily and morally, by managing to turn his son against him. Pope Gregory ended up dying in exile after he had called the Normans to get him back into Rome after Henry IV had pushed him out. 
The Normans had had a field day in the city, sacking it, and when Gregory was blamed, he was forced to leave with the attacking Normans, and died, as we said, exiled in Salerno in 1085, as the war between Henry and Matilda raged on. Henry IV lasted quite a while longer, but in the end, the heartbreak of a second son turning against him was too much, and he died in 1106, leaving the throne to his rebel son, Henry V. Matilda made it to 1115, after having made peace with the new emperor in 1110. She died at the age of 69, having done her duty to the end. She is one of the few women buried in St. Peter's in Rome. Moving ahead a bit, the Concordat of Worms in 1122 finally put a sort of end to the investiture crisis. Before closing, obviously, we must mention Pope Urban II and his launching of the Crusades starting in 1095 that involved two, let's say, Italian protagonists, the Norman Hauteville boys, Bohemond and Tancred, respectively son and nephew of Robert Giscard, whom we spoke about in episode 43, while we said goodbye to Henry IV and Matilda in episode 44. As mentioned at the start, episodes 45 and 46 were a recap on the life of Matilda and the Canossa family, 47 and 48 looked at the Byzantines in Italy, and 49 and 50, Muslim Sicily. Having recapped all of these things, we are now ready to proceed once again into the age of the communes. As always, thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to Emily D for a very generous PayPal donation. Thank you very much, Emily. And thanks as always to my lovely Patreon supporters, the Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi level, Ed, Jeff, Joshua and Sean, the Matilde Di Canossa and Giuseppe Mazzini level, Benjamin, Maddie, Roberta, Scott and YR, the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Ben, Silane, Chris, Dean, Ignazio, Jay, Caitlin, Kevin, Shelby, Stephen and Vincent, and the top level Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level Sen. Remember, if you want to get in touch, you can do so. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com at the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media, Facebook and Twitter, consult timelines, lists of rulers and maps to help navigate our country's complicated history. Once again, thanks for listening and until next time, arrivederci. Media. 
Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.